deep in the heart of the swamp. This is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales, Gator Greats. I'm your host, Adam Schick. On our last episode, we detailed the infusion of new talent on the 2006 roster, with Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin becoming instant playmakers in particular. Now, after two blowouts to open the year against Southern Miss and UCF, it was time to see how gritty these Gators could be. This is Trail to Glendale, Episode 3, Road Trippin'. While it certainly faded from the national spotlight relative to its peak in the late 90s and early 2000s, Florida-Tennessee was still a critically important game in 2006, with the 7th-ranked Gators heading to Knoxville for their first true test of the year against the 13th-ranked Vols. Here's freshman return specialist Brandon James. Well, going through four years of playing Tennessee, that was... I can really look back and say that was the one game that was truly a Florida-Tennessee rivalry battle. You know what I mean? They still had all those great great players on defense. They had all those big-time receivers. And, uh, you know, it was a nail-biter, man. And, um, and being able to play in that stadium twice, that freshman year was the one time where that stadium was really electric, man. It looked like a gladiator arena, 100-plus uh, thousand that ugly burnt orange they're going they're going crazy and uh rocky top all night and so it was a battle all night and to just be able to help the team the way i did and make the plays i did man it was special because again i, I had no clue going into that game that i was going to play the pivotal role that i did i, I didn't know i was going to have the success i did but you know looking back on it i had a i had a pivotal role in that game because two returns basically one called back but again like i tell people all the time all of them count in my eyes if it didn't happen <laughs> right where the play happened. So that one counted. And then the one where the punter tripped me up. And, uh, you know, again, I'm a football enthusiast where I remember watching videos of Rito Anthony running on the short side where you can jump um, and almost be in the stands. And I already had in my mind what I was going to do when I celebrate, when, when I got into the end zone. So it was unfortunate I didn't get in. But to be able to make those plays, man, in that big game, and the way it was going back and forth and help us with field position and all of that good stuff there, man, that was just – one of the true Tennessee-Florida rivalries. And uh, like I said, man, the, the other three years, they were, you know, sorry to say, they were garbage. You know what I mean? We kind of <laughs> blew them out. It wasn't a close game. I think the last year with Kiffin, man, it was a tough game. But really, we, we, we were in control the whole time. It was just one of those things where we just weren't putting up the points we were supposed to. On that night in Neyland Stadium, the Gators had to dig deep. As senior quarterback Chris Leak remembers facing a late deficit in front of over 106,000 fans. I believe we were down 17 to seven and it was, uh, I believe the towards the end, towards the middle or end of the third quarter. And we as a team being on the road in Knoxville, hostile environment, we had to make a decision. Okay. This is where we make the decision. What, what type of team we're going to be. And to come back and win the way we did with all facets of the game, playing great defense, scoring on offense at first down after first down, drive after drive, um, even third downs and longs, fourth and shorts, you know, goal line situations. Those were all situations that happened during that game because that so that was a that was a very uh, very tough game for us and who we wanted to be as a team um, going into the rest of the year. And so that was that's what I remember the most is the resiliency of that team. Uh, being down 17-7, to seven, us being able to come back and, uh, and win that game at the end. 
Gators, Tennessee's 21-yard line. Ball on the left hash. Leak in the shotgun. Takes the snap, fakes the ball to win. Leak standing back, looking to throw. Fires the ball to the right side. He's got a receiver. There's Dallas Baker to the 10, to the 5. He's in for the touchdown. Oh, my. Dallas Baker is your touchdown maker, and the game is tied. We've got 20-20 vision. In the first of two one-point squeakers that season, Florida prevailed 21-20 thanks in large part to their freshmen. With Brandon James providing electric punt returns and Tim Tebow converting some critical short yardage situations on the ground. But it was also an early statement by the defense, which pushed Tennessee into the red with negative 11 rushing yards on the night. For co-defensive coordinator Greg Madison, it announced the arrival of a unit he already knew was exceptional. I was working with the defensive line and I felt that that was one of the all-time after I look back it's probably one of the all-time best defensive lines ever to play I mean uh when you think of two first rounders uh, Jarvis Moss and Derek Harvey on the edges and maybe the very best football player of all of them was playing with an ACL and that's Ray McDonald. I mean, he Ray McDonald was as good a three technique as played the game. And he showed that in the NFL after that. And uh, But people don't realize he played the entire year, I think, with a torn ACL. Put a brace on and just played. And, and played against the best players in the country. And, uh, and Joe Cohen. And we had six guys that we could rotate. And they all bought in to playing as hard as they could on every snap. It's odd now to think of Brandon Spikes as having ever been one of the young guys. But as a freshman in 2006, all he could do was look up in awe of the upperclassmen he trailed on the depth chart. Well, I think, you know, one thing Brandon Siler did was, you know, held, held everybody accountable with knowing their stuff. You know, with him being a Mike linebacker, you know, he was responsible for making checks and getting everybody lined up. So, you know, his his thing was, like, I, even though that's my job, y'all still need to know your job. When you come in, I can't be, you know, trying to line y'all up and, and make some plays myself. So, you know, he did a great job of that, you know, being the captain of, of the defense with that. And Reggie Nelson and, and the D-line is just, you know, they, they play speaks for itself. You know, you got to – you see them on tape, you see how they go about business every day. You know, they was good people to look up to because, you know, they, they had been doing it in a while. And I think Reggie, Reggie had came in from a junior college. He was, what, second year there mm-hmm. at the time for my first year as a second year. But he was just a – Outright baller, man. I've never seen anything like it. I think, what was his nickname? The Eraser? They called him down Wait, there. Uh, yeah. It was like, water covers 70% of the earth. Reggie Nelson covers the rest. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about right. <laughs> it, it seemed that way. Every time you just watching tape or at practice, man, it just does something just unbelievable. And that's what I knew. I was like, well, I'm not really worried about the, the back end. Then I D-line. Honestly, I think our linebackers is like one of the, uh, I ain't going to say the weakest ones, but our D-line and our secondary is pretty pretty legit. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. So, But the D-line, Ray McDonald, uh, Joe Cohen, Jarvis Moss, those guys, Marcus Thomas, I hadn't seen nothing like it since. I don't think I've been a part of anything like that before. Just the, the talent and the, you know, the, the potential was just unbelievable. Uh, who else? Derek Harvey, all those that's guys. That's right. People, that's right. People forget all about him. That man went like top 10 or top 15. <laughs> and people, he's like, came out of nowhere. I was like, no, he didn't. I watched him in practice, destroy everything every, every day. So 
Whatever. He just, it was just, the, I think it was just so stacked, you know, when he got his opportunity, he shot. The key to a great defense is leadership. And the Gators got that primarily from junior Brandon Siler, who, if you've been listening to this series up until this point, you already know isn't shy about speaking up and having his voice heard. He was tremendous. Here's the thing you got to always know about a linebacker. The linebacker could be a great player himself, and that's all good. But if he is not vocal enough to make sure the front is set perfectly, then it won't be as good a defense. You're going to see a lot of linebackers that may go in the first round or second round, fine, and their defense wasn't that great, you know. Then you're going to find a bunch of linebackers that do a really good job and are unselfish and understand their job is to, one, be great, but two, get that front set. Make sure those guys up front are lined up correctly and know what's happening. And that's what he took great, great pride in. He was so vocal and he was so good at making the strong call and the, and the tendency call and, you know, alert for this and alert for that. He, he did a great job. Great players have their names remembered forever, but you have to be really elite to have a nickname that also sticks through the years. Junior safety Reggie Nelson truly burst on the scene by collecting interceptions on essentially the first and last plays of the Tennessee game. Two moments from a laundry list of massive plays in the 2006 season. 21-20 Florida, fourth down, 16 for Tennessee at the Florida 45-yard line. There's the snap to Ainge. Ainge dropping back, looking to throw, and fires the ball, and it's going to be intercepted. Oh, my! The Gators have picked it off. He threw the ball right to Reggie Nelson, who's got his second pick of the ball game, and the Gators have the football with a one-point lead and 2.47 to play. While Nelson was only a Gator for two seasons after coming in from junior college as a sophomore, the legend of the eraser still lives on with fans and teammates alike. And Brandon Siler believes the praise is well-earned. I mean, it was crazy because Reggie, if you know Reggie as a guy and Reggie as a football player, they're like two totally different people. I mean, Reggie will hit you, will knock you out. You know, that's why he got the name man racer. You know, we also will cover ground and pick a ball off from from hash to side, from opposite hash to sideline, you know. So having Reggie back there allowed us to do a lot of different things. You know, when you got somebody playing center field like that that can cover a whole field, but also can run his butt down in the box and slap, you know, five from somebody, it's crazy, you know. So we benefited from that big time. And our front seven was just ridiculous. But having him back there, you know, just solidify all of the things that we can do up front because when you let him run wild, you know, he can make up for a lot of other things. You can see a lot of times we'll be in uh, cover one and letting Reggie roam and Reggie will be wherever the ball is, wherever that ball end up, he'll be there. You know what I'm saying? He was as good a person as he was a player. And so anything that we wanted to change or anything that we needed to adjust. He's one of those guys that said, okay, coach, whatever you want to do for this team, I'm all for it. Uh, Reggie was, Reggie was unbelievable. And to have a guy like that, because in a great defense, you always have to be great down the middle. And he was the guy that was the eraser. Like you said, that if something did happen and nobody would ever know it happened, because he made the play. 
And uh, no, yeah, no, Reggie was special. Despite all of this incredible talent, the defense in 2006 didn't always make it easy on themselves through the regular season, but would buckle down and make a game-saving play just in the nick of time in all but one case. While this led many to refer to them as a bend-but-don't-break unit, don't tell that to the defensive coordinator. I don't ever want to be considered a bend-but-don't-break. <laughs> no, I, I don't, and I never looked at us that way. I mean, I, I think what it ended up being, and if you go back and look, is it's, it's a not don't give up big play defense, you know, and that's the deal. I mean, yeah, teams are going to do some things against you. You're not going to ever stop anybody 100%. But I tell you what, if you don't give up home runs, it's hard for a team to go the whole length. And I think that's what that defense said. That Now, some call that bend, but don't break. I don't call it that. I call it playing against really good offenses and not giving them home runs. Make them earn everything they possibly get. For the voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert, 2006 elicits memories of a team that had just the right ingredients to get the job done, whatever they may be on a given night. We didn't really dominate teams during that 2006 season but he gets back to what urban meyer's strength was in terms of his plan to win you know we were going to play great defense we were going to be good on special teams we weren't going to turn the ball over and you put all those phases together and that's kind of what happened we had good special teams and we limited turnovers played good defense and and as a result we kind of kept the game in front of us what fans likely remember the most of all, though, was the introduction of Tebow to the offense, and the freshman quickly developed a cult-like following whenever he entered the game, as he was generally called on in critical moments, beginning with the battering ram runs against Tennessee. Managing this pseudo-two-quarterback system was a season-long challenge for Urban Meyer and Dan Mullen, one that was ultimately successful thanks to the buy-in from both players. Well, you don't win with uh, selfless players. I mean, we've won three national titles, and all three of those, those weren't just the three great teams. We've had other great teams. But the selflessness and team-first approach, or you won't win. Um, you see it every year in college pro sports. Unless there's that quality of a team that I'll do anything to help my team. And that was the, the 06 was the ultimate, I would do anything to help my team win. And the selflessness that Chris Leak displayed along with Tim Tebow that championship does not happen well, but without both of them. Well, I think some of the, one of the things they understood and they got the, the trust with, you know, of, of talking to them of saying, hey, wait, what I need you to worry about is run on the field, execute the play we're going to ask you to execute and run off the field. And that's it. Don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about should I be coming out? What's going on? Just run off the field, take the coaching and go do the next play. And I think one of the things that really was unique in, in that dynamic was, I don't, you know, I mean, I, it's hard to say it was a, a, a really a two quarterback system. Chris, you know, Chris played about 90% of the plays, 90, you know, over 90% of the plays uh, I would bet for the season. So, you know, it was kind of a, a, a change up system, if you will, more than a two quarterback system. Uh, you know, and I think Chris really bought into, hey, Tim was going to come in and do some things that Chris didn't do well. And, you know, that would give us an advantage. And I think it was something that Chris understood and bought into was, you know, I, I got this guy that's going to come in as a change up. 
you know, he's, he's really good at certain things that I don't do well. And it's going to, you know, give us an advantage and keep defense on their toes. And I think as it went and as it continued to grow, I think they started to see, you know, every once in a while, we, we would throw some, some curveballs at the defense. Like, you know, you'd run Tim in and throw it and then run Chris in and run it. And, you know, and it, it was like kind of, whoa, but they, they really, you know, I think they understood there's a plan exactly for what we do. And they knew what the plan was going into the game. And both guys bought into it and realized, hey, you know, what we're going to do is highlight your strengths as individuals and protect against your weaknesses as individuals uh, and put both of you on the highest platform that we can. It really was Chris Leak's team, but we saw kind of early on that they had this special package of plays for Tim. And usually, you know, third and short, fourth and short, goal line, because he's such a powerful runner. And uh, that's how they really utilized him. I remember his throwing was kind of somewhat kept to a minimum because Chris Leak was an outstanding thrower and was a, was a good quarterback, but he wasn't a running quarterback. You know, he struggled in a running game and, you know, uh, and put it in Dan Mullins terms. I'm, I'm not sure that Chris Leak was uh, an overly willing runner, but he did, he did have some good scrambles, but you could tell it wasn't his natural instinct. Whereas upon it, Tim, that was, so we had two quarterbacks with two different skill levels and I thought they utilized them very, very well. I, I thought the Urban Meyer with, with Dan Mullen together, you know, they, they really were on top of what the best strength of this team was. At the end of September, the 4-0 Gators welcomed Alabama, who had waxed Florida and Tuscaloosa the year prior. While the Tide were still one year away from bringing in Nick Saban and turning the West upside down, they were still formidable, causing consistent problems on a day the Orange and Blue were donning new throwback jerseys. Trailing 10-7 in the second quarter and trying to keep a drive alive on third down at midfield, Leak showed Tebow he had some wheels as well. Leak takes the snap, looks like he wants to run and does up the middle of the field of 40. Leak makes a move to the 30. He's off to the left side to 20. Leak to the 15. Leak to the 10. Leak to the 5. And Leak is down near the goal line and stopped just short at the one-yard line. How my Chris Leak has just run 47 yards and it is first down and goal to go. Well, I remember the call and we practiced it in practice and uh and you're right. Like I like every time I got on the headset with Coach Mullen, who was uh, you know, at the time was up in the booth, I you know, I would try to convince him to throw the ball every play. He'll go back. <laughs> he'll probably he'll laugh laugh at it now. But I, I think the one game that he kinda gave in was Florida State, uh, on the road in two thousand six at Florida State that year. He kinda just kinda let me go and and just he just pretty much called called passing plays the whole way and I would if I saw a run, I would just check to it. Um, but I, I know that was that was one of my fun, one of the best fun games I had because I knew every play that, is go, that was going to be called was going to be a pass play because that you know that's, that's that was that was my gift. My gift was throwing the football, as I as we said, as I said earlier. But um, but that run was uh, yeah, it was you know it was one of those things where we're just trying to you know get a first down and it just happened to it just it just happened to where the seas parted. Um, Billy Latsko, who was our fullback, and I say till today, he was the really the unsung hero and part of the heart and soul of that team. I mean, he was a really huge part of our success offensively. And uh, and Billy Billy Latsko came uh, on as a walk on, and I tell that all the time. Every time I see him, the, the appreciation I have for him um, because we wouldn't have been able to do the things that we did without him. And the fact that he was able to be he was able to be healthy every single game, every single week when he pretty much did the dirty work as a fullback and as an H back, um, 
catching the you know, blocking, lead blocking, catching the ball out of the backfield. I mean, he really was an essential part. And during that run, I pretty much just followed uh, Billy up up to the linebacker, and I ran shed, ran off his block. Uh, if I remember, I cut to the left off of Cornelius Ingram's block, and and uh, I guess I wasn't quite fast enough to get to the end zone, but I got <laughs> I got as I got as far as I could. And, uh, I always talk, go back and talk to Coach Malin and and Urban. They always bring up that run, and uh, Coach Adazio. He I mean he was he's always he always got really really. I remember him being really really pumped up about that run because he was a. Uh, a ground and pound guy, right? Uh, and uh, and uh, he really cares about the physicality of that of the game, the run game. So that was that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun seeing the coaches get pumped up for that. As jacked up as everyone was about that play, it was later overshadowed by an even bigger one on the defensive side. With Alabama driving late in the fourth quarter and trailing by just eight, Reggie Nelson sent the swamp beyond its boiling point. Second and ten for Alabama at the Gator forty-six. Darby in motion on their side. Wilson to throw, fires down the field, interception. Reggie Nelson, right side 50, Nelson 40, Nelson down the sideline 30, Nelson 20. Run, Reggie, run. A cut back to the 10, a touchdown. Oh, my. Reggie Nelson, take it all the way. Oh, my. The Gators lead 27 to 13. You know, I've been waiting for that guy to do something like that all year long because you knew it was in him. The Gators were ranked 5th in the nation and 5-0 heading into homecoming the following week, but it was far from your average homecoming opponent. Rather than the usual Vanderbilt or Kentucky, a top 10 LSU squad was coming to town with a host of stars, led by the soon-to-be first pick in the NFL draft, Jamarcus Russell. According to Brandon James, that just further fueled the fire. Like you said, man, they had a lot of good players, man, all those big-time receivers and, uh, Jamarcus and you know actually the cornerback um God he's gonna make he's gonna be so mad at me uh Chavis Jackson he's my uh brother Kenny's receiver um he's my brother Kenny's DB DB coach right now at uh KU hmm. and we joke about it when I went on the recruiting visit and uh because he was the returner when Riley Cooper hit him and he fumbled so I remember just freshmen making a lot of big plays that game I think I had a, a decent return they didn't take it back or anything like that but you know just being a part of those early SEC battles man as a freshman and, you know, again, you watching these games on TV the year before and now you're in the thick of it. You know what I mean? And you're able to help field position and change the, uh, you know, the pace of the game and things like that, man. It was just, a, you know, a lot of great NFL talent on the field and a really big game. And really, that was really the first game, too, if I'm correct, that I could really say that, like, I see the electricity in the swamp because, you know, it's the SEC team and, you know, once – we always say, man, once we lock those gates, the chains are loose and only Gators get out alive. And that was one of those games where, man, Reggie was knocking, Reggie Nelson was knocking people out and erasing people off the field. And, you know, like I said, freshmen were making plays on special teams. So all around, I can really look back at that game and say, I remember that being a real team effort. I, I don't think that at that time, anybody believed how good we was. You know, we, you know, we beat Tennessee by one point. Um, you know, I don't think anybody believed how good we was until that game. At this point, I could tell you a lot of crazy numbers from that game, like the fact LSU had more total yards than Florida but had five turnovers, or that the Gators committed 14 penalties for over 100 yards. But Florida's 23-10 win that day is widely remembered as the dawn of the jump pass. Second down and goal, one-yard line, left hash. Tebow. 
at quarterback. Takes the snap and again looks to run. Now stops and throws the ball into the end zone for Tate Casey. And Casey makes the catch. Oh, my. It was a dump pass to the tight end. Tate Casey, touchdown. The last time I saw that was at J.J. Finley Elementary School playground. That was amazing. Looked like he was going to. Tebow took the snap out of the shotgun, ran it forward as if he was going to smash it in there, jump straight up like a jump shot, and Tate Casey, who was stumbling backwards, kept his balance long enough to catch the lob pass, and that was a classic. You won't see that many times. Well, I mean, we, it was something we had in back at the University of Utah. We won a game uh, with it at Utah. Then Moa was the guy. And so what we would do is back at Utah, Alex Smith was our quarterback. And anybody knows, I know Alex, athletic, but not, uh, you know, not really your power dynamic runner, uh, more of a more of a passer. And so when we had those kind of those power, short yardage, powerful quarterback runs, we would put somebody else in. We'd either snap it to the running back or snap it to our tight end. And, uh, so uh, we had a tight end in, uh, named uh, Ben Moa. And back in um, 2003 season, and, you know, we're playing Air Force and in, on fourth and goal from the one in uh, the second overtime, uh, Ben Moe, we line up, we snap it directly to Ben and he powers his way in and scores the touchdown. And we go for two and line up in the exact same formation. So it looks like we're going to run the exact same play. Right. Then took the ball, sprinted the line, jump and did the jump pass. And we, you know, tight end was by himself in the back of the end zone. So uh, it's something we had had for a while. And, and, uh, but you need to have kind of a guy to, to do the, that sort of package. And, you know, Tim was a guy that, you know, could come in and, and even as a quarterback though, but had the skill set to run that kind of that quarterback power package. You know, so that kind of led to the jump pass. And I, I know when we ran it against LSU for the first time, uh, it was kind of a unique situation. You put Tim in, it was right before the end of the half. I think there was probably about 10 seconds left in the half. And one of the things I think was second and goal. Uh, one of the things you wanted to do is is you, if you ran it, you really had you could you could kind of call a pass and keep a uh, timeout in your pocket because if it didn't work, it's incomplete. Uh, and then you have a run or pass option on the next play. If you called the run and had to use your last time out, you really handcuff what you can do. And so, you know, it was a, it was a situation where I think everybody was expecting a power run uh, right near the end of the half. And, and we wanted to get a pass play that we just had some safety and kept us some more options. And, you know, I think Tim probably, I, I think between Tim and Tate Casey, they made it a lot more dramatic than they needed. <laughs> I mean, Tim jumped and like double pumped in right. the air and Tate falling down in the back of the end zone. Uh, they made it a little bit more dramatic than they had to, but you know what? It was a big turning point in that, uh, in that game. Well, I think what people saw was the way that Tim Tebow responded on the field. In other words, if you put Tim Tebow in on third and two and he continually got stopped and then made a memorable third down gain, I don't know that people would have thought that, that that's a great third down player. But seemingly, almost every time they called upon him to make that tough yard or two, he made it. So it got to be where people were almost thinking, you know, it's it's not always great to be sitting here on third down, but if it's third and seven or eight, we got a shot with, with Chris Leakes throwing the ball. If it's third or one and two, we're not going to put it in Chris Leakes' hands and let him throw a five-yard pass or say, try and make a read and run. We're just going to go to Tebow. 
And that's the remarkable thing about that is everybody in the stadium, including the other coaching staff, the other team knew that it was going to be Tebow's football. And they still didn't stop him. I mean, rarely did they stop him. So he was able to convert those third and fourth downs. And then because of his ability to to be so a tough, powerful runner physically between the tackles, that played itself perfectly into what we saw then become the jump pass because they had to honor his rocker step, that initial step forward that he needed to stop and he could throw a pass. He had a strong arm. He could throw it a long way, but they never really, other than throwing the ball a long way, he had a high percentage completion rate because he didn't really throw the ball in any trouble. <laughs> right. He would roll out and he if he saw the if he saw the guy open, he'd throw it. It was a total different way of throwing the football than 10 years earlier in the fun and gun, where Steve Spurrier's passing was on precision, you know, drop back, take steps, throw it on rhythm. That was a totally different thing. You know, if, if Danny Werfel could complete 60% of those passes like that, that 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 shows you how well he that system ran. Well, 60% completion is not great when you're rolling out to your, in Tim's case, rolling out to your left and throwing the ball seven yards to Percy Harvin, he makes the catch. If you're only completing 60% of those throws, that's not good enough. So Tim had one of the great pass completion ratings because he wasn't throwing it. Again, that was part of not turning the ball over. We're not going to make you throw that ball on rhythm to a guy that's that hasn't made his, his cuts yet. So it was a different way to do it. And it, it was not necessarily sideline to sideline, but it was not necessarily you know, up and down the field, north and south either. We did play sideline to sideline because that got back into Urban Meyer's philosophy that we're going to be the fastest team in America. And we can get you out there on the edge. Our guy is going to be better than your guy. And if we can get two of our guys on one of your guys, <laughs> ball game. Mm-hmm. It's it's over. It's a checkmate. You, know, you can't stop us. So that that's the way they utilize the field from sideline to sideline. You know, so that that was why Tim was a perfect element to that. And they, they did a great job of blending in those concepts. Probably when you look back upon it, uh, the team he had, the team he had, a couple of teams he had at Utah when he had Alex Smith. Alex Smith was probably the hybrid between those two guys. So they didn't have Alex Smith at Florida, but they had Tim Tebow and they had Chris Leak. And together, by using them in certain ways, they could almost recreate an Alex Smith type. And that's kind of what they did. And uh, that's why I'm always I'm always wanting to make sure that Chris Lee gets his due because he was he was very essential to that. And yet Tim Tebow became the legend and rightfully so. That's what he did X and O's on the field. I just what I talked to you about is what the fans could see with their eyes on the field. What the fans didn't necessarily have access to was how Tim affected the team in the locker room, in the meeting room, and behind the scenes, where he was the quintessential guy that made everybody around him better, better competitors, and brought out the best in his fellow guys, both offensively and defensively. Because as you remember, Tim was an avid weightlifter. He would get in there with those linemen, whether it be offensive or defensive linemen, lift weights. So he had the he had the respect where he carried himself by both sides of the ball, whether it be upstairs or downstairs on the field. And so that's what made him really great. He had he had an on-field tangible ability and had the off-the-field intangible ability that could relate to everybody. The bizarre homecoming win over the Tigers vaulted them to number two in the nation, but staying undefeated meant slaying the SEC's other Tigers. Young Gator fans probably aren't aware of the longtime rivalry between Florida and Auburn. But the teams played every year from World War II up until conference realignment ended the yearly battle in 2002. This 2006 meeting relit the fuse, and while Florida was on the right side of a sloppy win the week prior, their luck ran out on this night at Jordan-Hare, 
as Auburn scored on a safety, blocked punt, and fumble return while shutting out the Gators in the second half on their way to a 27-17 win. It was a game fraught with controversy with some critical close calls going against Florida. And Brandon James remembers that frustration spilling over into the locker room after the game. We couldn't do anything right that night, especially on offense. Like, we could, you know, I, I remember having turnovers and fumbles, and, you know, I think we had an interception or two, a punt block. Um, we couldn't get anything going on the return game. And uh, they just had a great game plan, man. And, you know, they beat us. But uh, more so than anything about that game, I remember going back in that locker room mm-hmm. and seeing how mad the seniors were, how mad the defense was, you know, and that team, again, now our freshman class, or it was very competitive, you know, but we learned it from those guys, like coming into that locker room after that game, the defense was ready to basically go blow for blow with the coaching staff and the offense, because they felt like they had did their job. The offense didn't do their job and guys were pissed, but you need that on teams. You know what I mean? Because Coach Meyer would always say, everyone, you do your job. Don't worry about the next man. You need to do your job. And those guys had felt like they did their job and the offense let us down that night. Um, And quite frankly, as a special teamer at the time and not really having a role on offense or defense, hey, I, I just giving my opinion, I, I thought the same thing. So, you know, you learn early on, like, look, man, these guys mean business. They, These guys, really, I mean, you're seeing grown, big, 250 pound men crying you know what i mean i thought i was the only guy that cried when i lost you know what i mean you're seeing 250 pound men crying ready to fight and all that good stuff there so it teaches you early on like people really you know everyone really cares about and they're invested in what they're doing you know what i mean so uh, and it actually was a turning point for my season from that point on chemistry is so important i'll never forget this charlie strong and greg madison our cody coordinators and we were playing pretty well on defense still struggling on offense and and Chris was struggling, you know, uh, and it wasn't just Chris. It was, you know, Dallas Baker hadn't become Dallas Baker yet. And Lewis Murphy had didn't become Lewis Murphy yet. It was just kind of, we weren't there. So after the game, we lose that game. And, and we almost, it's almost a fight in the locker room afterwards. You know, I can hear there's offense versus defense yelling at each other in the locker room. And very, it, was, it was awful. And I remember I'm standing next to Charlie Strong and Brandon Siler and, and some of those guys were voicing their opinion about the offense. Some of the offense linemen were coming back at him. And he told me, you better break this up. And I said, no. I said, I want to hear it. And I told him, keep going. I said, this is, you know, uh, you know I've never done anything like that. But I wanted to hear it. If you're going to complain and, and worry about someone else's business all the time, I want to hear it. And I use that as a great teaching point that, you know, quit worrying about the darn offense and take care of yourself. You know, and I use that on the Sunday meeting. Uh, when we got back and it seemed like that was one of those moments that all the air was cleared everybody said what they had to be set, said and I think a lot of them realized that you know what instead of worrying about my teammate worry about my own job and do my job the best I can and that was the mantra the rest of the year here's Chris Leak. the game was a tough game it was a tough game emotionally uh, it, was a, it was a tough role anytime you go on the, in the SEC with that team that we had, as good as we were, we did not expect to lose one game. And those ex- when those expectations weren't met, yeah, the emotions um, were definitely going to be flying high. And um, I think it was, I think it was, it was less of, to me, in my opinion, it was less of finger pointing that that happened from my perspective and what my teammates came to me and talked to me about personally was well it was more it was more about us just hold us just holding each other to the standard that we had set. Yeah, I mean, you had to have the leadership of the guys had to finally just, it isn't all bad to call people out, but you better understand that you aren't trading. It's not the NFL. 
those are who you're playing with. So when a young man gets called out, he either can back up that he didn't do it or change it. And that's what I think anybody that did maybe not play up to his ability changed it. This is Brandon Seiler. It's crazy because I look at that Auburn game as the game that for us as a team that did it. You know, um, I still remember being I, I thought we were invincible after LSU. I thought that there's no way that we could lose. We was close knit. We were family. We were tight. We played good defense, played great defense. Our offense was coming along. Um, I just I felt like we couldn't be beat. And then that next week, I still remember at Auburn after the game in the locker room saying, don't worry about it. We still got this. It ain't over. It ain't over. And somebody looking at me like the game is over. You know what I'm saying? And it took that them saying that to me to be like, what? Wait, we lost, you know? And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that we could lose, you know, at that point. And I think that kind of tilted us in a direction, you know, we wasn't going to lose, you know, we kick, fight, claw, whatever we needed to do, but we wasn't going to lose, you know, after that point. Redshirt freshman wideout David Nelson may not have been through as much as the veterans, but he knew strong leadership when he saw it. You know, losing to them, but going to the locker room and seeing the seniors on that team uh, pick everybody up. You know, in that moment, you can kind of that's 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 a devastating loss on the road against a, a rival. And uh, after being undefeated like we were and, and just the leadership on that team, just not letting guys quit, not letting guys give up. Um, and, and for every, like I said, the previous regime, from my understanding, it just things like that didn't happen. And just seeing guys just take over and, and, and demand that. You know what? On Monday, when we get back, we're getting back to work. Like our season is not going to be defined by this one loss. Like we are better than this loss. This we can be everything. We can still accomplish everything we want. And just guys, just never letting anybody put their heads down. Never refusing or always refusing to accept that uh, we weren't going to be who we thought we were. Some people cringe at the idea of a good loss, but as both a student of history and a leader of this particular team, Leek was able to put the disappointment in appropriate perspective. I still go back to the Florida team back in 2001 where, you know, it was Rex Grossman, it was uh, Risha Caldwell, obviously Coach Spurry was the head coach, uh, Jabbar Gaffney. I mean, that team, that team could look, just look unstoppable. And it, it just, it just let me know how hard it is to win. Just not in just in the state of Alabama, but in the hostile environment at Auburn, it was, it, it's tough. It's tough to get, go there mid-season, mid-October, you're a little you're you're beat up from playing the LSUs, the Alabamas, um, and you're trying to you're trying to you're trying to withstand the October gauntlet, mm-hmm. which we had that 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 year. Um, because I believe we had Georgia to play the following game mm-hmm. that week. And uh so we're so everybody's a little beat up. Everybody's we're, we're trying to get through the October gauntlet so we can get to a bye week and uh, get back healthy. And uh yeah, it was just one of those games where I mean, you name it, offensively, defensively, special teams, just, it just, it just, it just didn't, um, <laughs> it just didn't work out the way that we planned to, you know, sometimes, and, and when you're, when you're in the SEC and you, and that, that sometimes can happen. And I think back to all the, all of Florida's national championship uh, teams, they always had that one loss that in my opinion, really propelled them to a new level of focus, a new level of awareness 
um, to stay focused during throughout the rest of the season. So it uh, so it was something that I think was it was a healthy loss for us because it really got us back to, you know, we were undefeated. I we were undefeated with the number two team in the country. It, you know, it humbled us. To, you know what we ha- we have to get back to this level. We know the level we can play at, and um, so let's refocus. Let's get ready. Let's take the bye week. Let's heal up. Let's get ready for for a Georgia game that's always going to be a tough, tough contest. And uh, yeah, so I think that game really refocuses, just like it did all the other two, the other two Florida national title teams. The bye week came at the perfect time, with the Gators needing to recover physically and get back on the same page mentally. And if what you need is a repaired psyche, it's helpful to have a coach with a degree in psychology. Urban was so, so great at getting every player to the dance. And, I mean, there were some kids that made mistakes that he had to punish, but he didn't give up on them. And there were kids that might not have been playing great that got to play better. He was as good as there was at making sure that the big picture was more important than day to day. and. And he really worked hard on the coaches being responsible for their group. I mean, he totally put it on us that, okay, each position, you are responsible for your guys. And now if you can't handle them, then I have to as a head coach, but I don't expect to. And, uh, and, and that's what made him special. The younger guys was always learning from the older guys, and the older guys, the the younger guys kept us young, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, so it was it was a really good dynamic for us as a team and the in the locker room, and we had the toughest schedule in the country that year, and so we needed for that locker room to be able to withstand the adversity and the the to have the emotional stability, you know, young and old, and uh, there was there was a different level of maturity of that team, and. Um, you have to you have to obviously give your hands off to Coach Meyer and the way they recruited and uh, we we all put it together and all came together because it takes it takes a lot more than just a team and calling plays to win the championship and uh, we that team definitely put it all together that year. On our next episode, the Gators emerged from the bye week on a mission, but it would take everything they had to keep the dream alive. Until then, I'm Adam Schiff, giving a special thanks to production assistant Eli Rosen and to all of you for tuning in to this latest installment of Gator Tales, Gator Greats.